All right, so we've been in a series together in the book of James called Wisdom Lived Out. We live in an age of information and misinformation and all kinds of chaos and power structures and dynamics. And so uh, it's important that we be able to go to Jesus to find wisdom because information and knowledge is only helpful if you have wisdom with which to navigate it, right? Now, this message this morning is not really going to be like mind-blowing or like revolutionary in any way. It's just hard work. The truth is uh, that truth can be very simple and yet very difficult for us to receive, right? We are saved by grace and not by works, but we do have some agency in how much we allow the grace that God gives so freely to change our lives. And a lot of that has to do with what we are and are not willing to let go of, right? Dallas Willard says, grace is not opposed to effort, it is opposed to earning, right? So today's passage, it speaks to this point uh, that followers of Jesus, we sometimes behave as if we are not followers of Jesus. And so he's giving us some corrective words to kind of correct our course and to invite us back into the way of wisdom. So if you want to turn there, James chapter 4, we're going to start in verse 1. James chapter 4, verse 1. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive, because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think the scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Wow. Some things are difficult to put on like a coffee mug or like a t-shirt, right? Some scriptures, grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter into mourning. This is not easily a marketable phrase. This is one of those moments in scripture where I think we are meant to experience, yes, sobriety concerning our behavior and to wake up to the damaging realities that our sin can bring in our lives, but also yet to experience hope. In the Old Testament, near Eastern ancient cultures, there was this uh, 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 system of covenants. Basically, if you were to make an agreement with a god or a king, you would create a covenant in which if you were faithful to said god or king, here are the blessings that would follow. And if you were not faithful, here are the curses that would follow. The Hebrew god, Yahweh, is different in that when he creates his covenant, he says, here's the blessings that you will reap if you follow me. Here are the curses you will reap upon yourself if you don't. But if you turn from your ways and come back to me, I am faithful to forgive. This is what sets God's ideology apart from the way the world works. So I want to ask a question. What keeps us from getting the things that we want? And what makes those things so important to us that we will fight with one another and step on each other to get those things. Some of us maybe want to make more money. 
Some of us maybe want to gain more influence or to have more power. Some of us maybe want to experience more pleasure or to gain more knowledge or to be more desired. You can fill in the blank. We all kind of have these things that we want more of. So if you spend a lot of, chil- a lot of time with children the way that I have, um, you learn that some of their movies are really actually pretty thoughtful and profound and that others are just garbage and noise. Um, but I have found no end in my personal journey of discipleship in the lessons of Poe in the Kung Fu Panda saga. <laughs> Knock it all you want. Those films are masterpieces. Don't at me. I will stand by that conviction. Those are really good films. Um, and the score? Come on. So good. Anyway, in the second film, the antagonist is this bitter peacock who wishes to secure power by wiping out any potential threats through conquest and intimidation, right? And he goes to this soothsayer, an aged old goat, to seek wisdom. And she warns him, and she says, the cup you choose to fill has no bottom. And I'm in my living room during the pandemic watching this like, wow, this is preaching to me right now. I think all of us tend to carry with us cups that are impossible to fill. No matter how much money, how much influence, how much, how much power, how much pleasure, how many accolades, it will never feel like it's enough. As the old adage goes, what do a poor person and a rich person both have in common? They both wish they had more money. And what's insidious about this conundrum is that what each of us desires is actually pointing to something beneath the surface to a deeper desire, right? So maybe those of us who crave influence perhaps don't know that we really want to know that our lives have meaning. Those of us who want more power tend to want things in their control and to create safety and stability. Those of us who want more pleasure perhaps are longing for a fleeting state of joy, you see? Usually there is a surface-level desire that has the ability to entice us and distract us and keep us from getting the deeper desire. Like perhaps money gives me more freedom and security, but a lust for money keeps me from feeling content, right? The famous theologian Jim Carrey said this, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see that it's not the answer. I think the redemptive journey for us is is for us to discover that in Jesus, we have had all along the things that we have strived for in our own understanding with futility. Sometimes I lie awake at night thinking about the parable of the two sons and the words the father said to the older son. He said, son, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. Or the words of Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount. Why do you worry about clothes? Look at the flowers of the field. They don't labor or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. C.S. Lewis, he wrote this. He said, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea, we are far too easily pleased. Too easily pleased. (laughs) So the question I posed at the beginning of all this was kind of a trick question. What keeps us from getting what we want? Well, what we want is really unobtainable. But there is something better 
beneath that desire. Something better than influence, it's fulfillment. Something better than pleasure, it's joy. Something better than money, it's contentment. Something better than power, it's hope. Something better than knowledge, it's wisdom. Something better than being desired, it's realizing that Jesus calls me beloved. All of these deeper desires, they are found in Jesus. So at the beginning of this passage, uh, James cites these quarrels that are happening between Christians. And I can't help but think that the Holy Spirit protected this wisdom from the first century and brought it to us today for us to learn from it. Because there has never been, at least in my lifetime, more quarreling among Christians than there is today. If you were able to catch last week's teaching, you remember that Jesus elevates the peacemaker and that, that making peace is what characterizes followers of Jesus, right? And Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. James calls attention to this reality in chapter 4 that stands in opposition to that value, stands in opposition to peacemaking, and it is quarreling and bickering. Now, what is exactly at the heart of this quarreling is, is debated by scholars, but we can deduce that whatever is at the heart of their bickering is the human tendency to behave selfishly. They are behaving like the world, desiring what the world desires and not what the kingdom desires. Oh, my notes just went away. One second. There we go. And this has caused them to turn against one another and to harm each other to get what they want, right? And then they don't get what they want, and this perpetuates in their frustration more infighting, right? James says that they are killing because they covet what the other has. Now, the idea that Christians were uh, physically killing one another is not likely. Uh, what's more likely is that this idea of killing one another is a concept born out of Christian wisdom that is circulating at the time. That is the teachings of Jesus. And Jesus went around teaching that when we hate or condemn a brother or sister, it is like murder in our hearts. It means that we fail to acknowledge the belovedness in them and therefore stand in opposed to what God wants for them. So James, oh, my notes keep going away here. We're going to figure it out, guys. Don't worry about it. Um, so Dr James writes that we, uh, uh, that we don't have what we want, and so we, we kill and we quarrel to get it. And then he says this, You do not have because you do not ask. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on pleasures. So James is suggesting that we do not have because we don't ask God. We go to the world for a surface-level desire that we want fulfilled, and then we don't get it. And because we don't get it, we then turn around and go to God for that thing. But what James is suggesting is that we should have gone to God with that desire in the first place. Because not only is God generous and abundant in his love, but he can show us, he can reveal to us just how weak those desires were and how much more he has promised for us. So what's the bottom line? We find ourselves unfulfilled because we are looking for the wrong things in the wrong places, and we are invited to go to God who will supply us for what we didn't know we needed, right? But here's the other thing. James calls out that we don't get what we want because we ask God with the wrong motives. So maybe I, I go to the world to make me rich and powerful and to satisfy, but then I resort to God to make me rich and powerful, and we still don't get what we want because maybe, maybe, God doesn't want to make me rich and powerful, Maybe he wants to make me content and courageous. 
We go to the world to feel desired. And then we go to God and say, I want to feel desired, but maybe he doesn't want me to feel desired. Maybe he wants me to rest in the truth that I am beloved. Right? There's a deeper truth that he wants to reveal to us. So we're going to the wrong places. We're asking for the wrong things. So not only do I have to stop going to the wrong places to get what I want, I have to humble myself to allow God to tell me what I need. And, be, and here's the thing. If we ask God for the things the world offers us, prayer becomes idolatry against the very God whom I claim to pray. Because I'm no longer praying to the God who provides what I need. I'm praying to the God who gives me what I want, and they are not the same God, right? So James says that to make ourselves a friend of the world is to make ourselves an enemy of God. Here's what James is not saying. He's not saying that we shouldn't, that we shouldn't love the world, right? That would be hypocritical. Because Jesus teaches us to serve the world, to love our neighbor, and to even to love our enemies. It was God's love for the world which compelled the loving sacrifice of Jesus. Now, I think what he means by friendship is this concept that we've seen over and over again in James up to this point, is that we find ourselves divided in our loyalties, divided in where we draw influence, that we find ourselves submitted to the wisdom of the world rather than the will of God. That's the kind of friendship he's talking about. And he uses this metaphor of God's relationship to his people being like a jealous groom for his bride, right? He calls us adulterers. And we see this imagery all throughout the Old Testament, that God is jealous for his bride, Israel. He's jealous for his people who go and they worship other idol gods or they worship other people. But the kind of jealousy that God has, it's, it's not an insecure human kind of jealousy that is afraid, like, if you walk away, does that mean that I'm not good enough? Like, what does he have that I don't have kind of thing? That's not it. God is completely self-sufficient in himself. He doesn't need us to ratify his own holiness, right? But a confounding point of divine truth is that this completely self-sufficient holy God does have an aching desire for us to be with him. So this jealousy, it's not a petty adolescent kind of jealousy, I've experienced that kind of jealousy before, right? Back when I was legally an adult, but practically a child, and dating my now wife, or before I was dating her, I remember I was firmly entrenched in the friend zone, right? And she would tell me all about her ex-boyfriends and like show me pictures, and she's from Hawaii, right? So all of her boyfriends were these really like fit surfer guys that are like taking pictures on the beach and showing off their muscles or whatever, right? And I'm like over here in the corner with my Star Trek shirt, like, who's your favorite Batman? Like that was, <laughs> I had a hard time competing. <laughs> that guy, that guy was like a human jealous, you know? That's not what I think God experiences when he has jealousy for us, right? I think if we were to ask God why he is jealous for us, we would realize that it's because he knows where our adultery leads, he knows that friendship with the world leads not only to a lack of fulfillment, not only an endless bottomless pit, but our pain and our destruction. And he knows that in life with him, although we may suffer and endure suffering, ultimately life with him leads to joy made complete. So to align ourselves alongside the world is to align ourselves against God. Remember last week how we talked about Peter? Now, Peter got in Jesus' way, and then Jesus said, get behind me, Satan, right? The Aramaic, the Hebrew, Satan, means one who stands in opposition to God. So if we make ourselves one with God's people, but then we start playing by the rules of the world and attempting to meet the expectations of the world, 
we find ourselves getting into a, in, in the way of what God wants to do and aligning ourselves against his people. This is not good. But, James writes, even so, he gives us more grace. When we find ourselves aligning with the world, when we lose the plot, when we find ourselves behaving in a way that insults the Spirit of God in us, there is grace for us. There is grace for us. I think we have a strong temptation, even after we say yes to Jesus, to have loyalty problems, right? This is not a static reality. We're like, okay, I'm going to be loyal to God and I'm loyal forever. I think every day we have to wake up and choose to submit ourselves to God. Because it's difficult to trust that we have everything we need when we do things his way. Sometimes it's easier to believe that I can do things my way and get what I want, right? So what is the antidote for this betrayal? How do we get to the grace of God? It's humility. Humility. Humility allows us to receive what God has freely given. James quotes Proverbs 3, and he says that God opposes the proud Another way to think of this is that those of us who can't let go of our pride, we constantly find ourselves in opposition to the will of God, and we heap a whole world of hurt onto ourselves when we do that. But when we exercise humility, that's when we're able to receive Jesus as a mercy in our lives. We find again and again in the scriptures that God honors those who admit that they got it wrong, who embrace their powerlessness. Weakness and acknowledgement of that weakness becomes strength. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why for Christ's sake, I delight in my weakness, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties, for when I am weak, then he is strong. I want to read to you an excerpt out of a book that I've come to really love and value. It's by a Christian author and contemplative named Henry Nouwen. And uh, he put together a compilation of journal entries during a difficult time of his life. I'm just going to read it to you. Stay focused, okay? Don't fall asleep. It's called Acknowledge Your Powerlessness. There are places in you where you are completely powerless. You so much want to heal yourself, fight your temptations, and stay in control but you cannot do it yourself. Every time you try, you are more discouraged. So you must acknowledge your powerlessness. This is the first step in Alcoholics Anonymous and the treatment of all addictions. You might as well think of your struggle this way. Your inexhaustible need for affection is an addiction. It rules your life and makes you a victim. Simply start by admitting that you cannot cure yourself. You have to say yes fully to your powerlessness in order to let God heal you. But it is not really a question of first and then. Your willingness to experience your powerlessness already includes the beginning of surrender to God's action in you. When you cannot sense anything of God's healing presence, the acknowledgement of your powerlessness is too frightening. It is like jumping from a high wire without a net to catch you. Your willingness to let go of your desire to control your life reveals a certain trust. The more you relinquish your stubborn need to maintain power, the more you will get in touch with the one who has the power to heal and guide you. And the more you get in touch with that divine power, the easier it will be to confess to yourself and to others your basic powerlessness. 
One way you keep holding on to an imaginary power is by expecting some outside gratification or future events. As long as you run from where you are and distract yourself, you cannot fully let yourself be healed. A seed only flourishes by staying in the ground in which it is sown. When you keep digging the seed up to check whether or not it is growing, it will never bear fruit. Think about yourself as a little seed planted in rich soil. All you have to do is stay there and trust that the soil contains everything you need to grow. This growth takes place even when you do not feel it. Be quiet, acknowledge your powerlessness, and have faith that one day you will know how much you have received. My son, you have always been with me, and everything I have is yours, right? So James, he invites the reader into humility. Submit ourselves to God, and it is in the nearness to God that we resist the enemy, right? When we draw near to God, he draws near to us, and the enemy has to flee. We don't fight the enemy by, like, fighting the enemy, right? We fight the enemy by running to the Father. And then James writes, Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord, and he will lift you up. What is he talking about here? Well, he's talking about repentance. Now, repentance can sound like a really religious word. You kind of get imagery drummed up of like the guy on the corner with the megaphone and the sign. Repent, the end is near, right? But repentance can actually be a really joyful and life-giving experience. But there is an aspect of repentance that can be unpleasant. The Greek word for repentance that's used in the New Testament, matanaeo, to change one's mind for the better, implying one's remorse and abhorrence with their sins. In other words, changing your mind about something because you feel guilty. That's what it is. There's something that gets utilized by psychologists and therapists in addiction therapy, and it's the discipline of mindfulness. In order for one to turn away from one's destructive behavior, one needs to become mindful of how that behavior is harming other people. There's something that happens to us when we step into a state of mind that, that is, involves addictive, addictive behavior. It's one's primal desires and cravings that take over one's logical thinking, right? We start thinking with what they call our lizard brain or our limbic system, and this controls all of our more automatic and instinctual behavior. We aren't thinking about the implications of our actions, we're just thinking about what we can get from it, right? What the mindfulness practice does is it brings our thinking to the frontal lobe, which controls our higher thinking, and it helps us to acknowledge the reality and the implications of the situation, right? So once we make ourselves mindful of what we are doing, we are able to experience the abhorrence, the disgust with that thing. We're able to feel guilt. And once we experience guilt for what we are doing, it becomes more possible to change our minds about it and turn the other direction. Now, guilt gets a bad rap, right? But guilt can become a very welcome ally in your life. It can help me experience remorse for things that I do that harm others. Think about it. Those of us in our society that cannot experience remorse are capable of really horrible things. But guilt shows me that my conscience is intact and that my behavior is harming myself or harming others. So James teaches us about this process. He urges us to wake up to our harmful behavior, to stop delighting in the things of the world, and to turn that laughter into mourning because it's giving you pleasure, but it is robbing you of your joy. That's what he's saying. 
Now, shame, shame is different. Shame is what pushes us into hiding. What Jesus invites us to is a rhythm of discipleship and confession, where through the renewing of our minds, we can wake up to the destructive power of our sin, experience remorse and guilt for those things, but then turn to Jesus in the light. Shame wants to keep us in the darkness, but Jesus invites us to be made new in community. Another way to think about it is like this. Guilt makes me feel bad about what I've done. Shame makes me feel bad about who I am. They're not the same. Shame takes the truth that no matter what I've done or experienced, that I am first and foremost beloved of God and a bearer of his breath and his image, and it calls that truth into question. That's what shame does. But James writes, humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up. God does not want you to be downcast or depressed or discouraged or self-loathing. It's not what he wants. He wants your eyes to meet his gaze without shame. Humility doesn't dismiss who I am. It simply acknowledges where I've failed, right? And God can do a lot with that. We see all throughout the scriptures that God honors the contrite heart, the poor in spirit, and the humble. Because when we are humble, we are able to receive what we couldn't get for ourselves. So friendship with the world means that we're trying to get what we want the way the world gets it. And friendship with God means we turn away from that thinking, we humble ourselves, and we trust that his way is better. And in that turning, in repentance, we meet his grace, his unending, his unchanging grace. And there, we are restored. And if we experience that grace in him, we are able to offer that grace to others. So whenever there is quarreling and fighting among Christians, it usually means that we are trying to get what the world offers the way the world gets it but we dress it up with all sorts of religious platitudes and scriptures taking out of context. But we're playing the same game as the world. I think every once in a while, we all need to take a step back and reflect and ask, what is at the center of our desires? What am I really looking for? I didn't ask Ashley to share what she shared this morning. But is the temple of your heart really exalting God? Or is it trying to get you personal gain? Where do I experience most of my anxiety, most of my disappointment? What triggers in me behavior which dismisses others, hurts others, covets others, judges others, takes advantage of others because I'd rather do those things than not get what I want? What behaviors in my life reveal that I am more loyal to the world than I am loyal to Jesus? What behaviors show me that? Am I truly content with what I have because the wealth of the kingdom does not depend on money or style? Am I truly confident in who I am because I know the king of the universe calls me beloved? Do I experience true joy even when I have little pleasure in my life? Am I courageous against darkness because I know that death itself cannot defeat me? Do I walk humbly when I could behave arrogantly because I know any strength that I have, I have in my weakness because God gives it to me? This is a point of reflection. And with that invitation, to clothe yourself in humility, we come to communion. This is the embodiment of humility. Just so you know, this sacrament is meant to be something that is done for people who call Jesus Lord. If you're not at that place in your life, know that that is completely okay. I want you to hold these elements in your hand and I want you to reflect on them. But for those of us who are going to take part in this this morning, know this. 
we're supposed to take this seriously. When we take communion, we're supposed to reflect on the nature of Jesus, his humility and sacrifice embodied and ask ourselves, as we take these elements into our own body, are we also making one with ourselves the way of Jesus? Are we choosing to align our lives with him? Are we making making ourselves a friend to Jesus or a friend of the world? In what ways do I need to pick up my cross and lay down my life so that I can find it? Because Jesus' death and resurrection and inaugurated a new reality for us. Sometimes we participate in that reality and we align ourselves with the kingdom of heaven. But in what ways are we acting like we are not saved children of God? In what ways are we acting like he has not given us divine hope? In what ways are we behaving like he doesn't know and have exactly what we need? In what ways are we going to the world to get what we want? That's what communion is meant to do in us. So let's take a moment in silent reflection and pray and ask the Holy Spirit to speak to us. Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take it together. And in the same way, he took the cup. And he said, this cup is my blood in the new covenant shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Would you stand as we pray together? Jesus, we ask that we would be clothed in humility. We ask that you would reveal to us in which ways we have aligned ourselves with the world in order to get what we want and failed to acknowledge that you have everything we need. I ask that we would receive your grace and open ourselves up to allow your grace to transform our lives, to transform our way of thinking, to be more like you. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen.